afternoon and welcome to this archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. My guest today is Jill Lepore, one of the foremost public intellectuals of our time. She's a professor of history at Harvard, and next summer she'll take on a concurrent appointment as professor at the Harvard Law School. She's been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 2005, and she's the author of more than a dozen books, including the international bestseller, These Truths, A History of the United States. Her latest offering is a collection of 46 essays, all but three of which have appeared in The New Yorker over the past decade. These essays are a marvel of imagination, synthesis, and insight. Lepore is a writer with an amazing gift for drawing connections between the historical and the contemporary. She connects dots like no other observer, and in this terrific and wide-ranging compendium, she weaves a beautiful tapestry of the personal and public, the quirky, and the quotidian. It's called The Deadline. Jill Lepore joined us on Zoom in October. Jill, it's great to kind of sort of meet you. (laughs) Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. And thanks so much for this uh, compendium of, of essays. I've, to, to call me a fan and an admirer of your work is a huge understatement. Um, but it's really uh, quite an experience to read uh, these things, you know, one after another, rather than once a week or once every few weeks in The New Yorker. Um, and the thing that I, one of the many things I, I love about this is how writerly these essays are. Um, it's not just the information you communicate it's the way you describe it the just the the writerly gifts that you have and you write in the beginning of the book that you you started off really more so wanting to be a writer than an historian how did that how did that play out oh well thanks so much for the kind words tom i um yeah i always wanted to be a writer i i kind of incidentally became a historian but i write about anything and would would write about anything um yeah, I thought when I was younger, oh, well, I'll write novels. And I I couldn't quite figure that out. I tried that a lot. Um, and then I ended up going to graduate school and studied American studies. I don't actually have any degrees in history. And just kind of ended up in a history department. And I'm really interested, I'm fascinated by the relationship between the past and the present. But I think that, you know, all writers are, right? <laughs> like those deep questions of how did we get here? aren't necessarily narrowly political history questions, right? Those are questions that we ask ourselves every day about the lives that we lead. They can be psychological questions. They can be sociological questions. For me, they're often historical, but they can be just as often personal questions. Yeah, you write that history is a long and endlessly interesting argument where evidence is everything and storytelling is everything else. So you're really good at the storytelling. It's interesting that you uh, you tried your hand at novel writing and you, you think that that didn't work out so well. Why why do you think that is? <laughs> well, I wrote a lot of short stories when I was young. Uh, I worked as a secretary for a few years before I went to graduate school and I wrote a novel. Um, I actually published a novel with a friend of mine, Jane Kamensky, a colleague of mine at Harvard uh, years ago. I wouldn't say that it was a failure. Uh, it was a really fun experiment. But I think what we both found, Jane's also a historian, the novel's called Blind Spot. It's a sort of a fake 18th century novel set in Boston during the revolution. And we had a lot of fun writing it. But I think we both found that it reminded us how much more we love writing history. Uh, so it, it's really sort of that. I mean, I find that um, 
digging through the archives and finding out what actually happened and trying to find a way to make it meaningful to a reader, just, I just I love that. Pro I love that process and sort of trying to imagine a fake story that could do some of that same work. That's just much harder for me. Yeah, I can see. It's interesting. One of your essays is called Just the Facts, Ma'am. You wrote it in 2008. Um, and you quote, uh, speaking of the 18th century, a guy named William Godwin, I think, who says the novelist is better, is the better historian because he admits that he's partial. Um, and there's this whole interesting conversation that's been going on for a while about the, uh, the place of novels in history and uh, the way they, uh, they, they interact and, and intertwine. Um, what, what, do, do you see the historian's role as you know, completely distinct from the, the role of the novelist? I think they're pretty interlaced. And I wrote that essay, Just the Facts, Ma'am, right after we finished writing this 18th century novel, Blind Spot, when I was thinking, trying to sort of process that what the experience had been of, of writing fiction. And the piece makes the argument that history and the novel divided in the 18th century. I mean, the novel, the modern English novel is really invented in the 18th century. That's why it's called the novel, because it's new. And it then, you know, the novel as it emerged in the 18th century was meant to tell the private stories of private ordinary lives right and that's what novels do right so it kind of requires the invention of privacy even as a historical phenomenon for their for the novel to exist but novels tended to be about family lives women's lives so they were often written by women and then history kind of moved in a kind of polarizing fashion as far as possible away from the novel so that history more and more became became the province of the great deeds of great men written by men and about men and that's sort of how it's kind of been ever since but when history took on that in the 19th century became kind of a profession it took on all these trappings of professionalism in which you know feeling and humor or laughter or sexiness or eroticism or passion or, uh, wryness or sarcasm, <laughs> like all the things that you would find in the novel were forbidden in the writing of history, which is why history is often quite dry to read. So that historians, and it's almost like, if you think about like the, the difference between doctors and midwives and how when, you know, the medical profession became professionalized in the 19th century, everything that women provided by way of medical care had to be demeaned and devalued in order for men to achieve that professional status. The same thing kind of happened between history and fiction, that the powers of storytelling, the pleasure of reading stories was demeaned by historians. So they, their work had to be kind of scientific and increasingly obscure. I, I think that's been really bad for the, you know, popular understanding of the past. Those, I mean, there's, there were purposes served by that professionalism. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think of myself as actually trying to really bring a lot of the rhetorical powers of the storyteller to the writing of history. Jill Lepore, her new collection of essays is called The Deadline. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Um, I love that distinction between like the midwives and the doctors and how they became separate. You also observe in that essay that uh, women didn't trust history in the 19th century, that they uh, were much more drawn to novels for a variety of reasons. Um, and the, the the observation that uh, Alice McDermott has made about um, truth and and in fiction and in reporting or in history I mean you you talk about 
an intellectual historian named Peter Novick, who uh, coined the phrase the cult of the fact uh, in the 19th century when history, as you say, becomes this profession. Um, and it's premised on standards that rest on the distinction between truth and invention. But you make clear uh, throughout all of these essays that invention is is at least a dimension of history writing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think imagination is. I mean, you really have to try to use your moral imagination, if nothing else, to put yourself in the place of long dead historical figures and try to understand the world from their point of view, not to endorse that, but in order to just imagine that world. And the cost of not doing that and abjuring that is is fairly significant. But I think what really annoyed you know, writers like Jane Austen was the pretense of historians that what they were doing was impartial and true and what novelists were doing, which, you know, novelists would say what they're finding and discovering is the truth of the universal. That um, the idea, you know, Austen was very, very funny on on the male writers of history of men. And if you think about even just today, right? So in the news recently, there's been a lot of coverage of uh, Walter Isaacson's biography of Elon Musk and Michael Lewis's biography of Sam Bankman Freed. And they're very forgiving and affectionate toward these figures who other people would not feel that affection and offer that forgiveness to. Um, and the idea that that is, you know, that is empirical and true because these are big, big, fat books, you know, very splashily published and heavily promoted and by men with a lot of gravitas about, you know, very, very well-known men means that they must be true. That's the kind of thing that really pissed off Jane Austen. Mm -hmm. um, and, and not to, to beat this uh, uh, subtopic to, to a pulp, but when it comes to the distinctions between uh, fiction and, and history, but um, I'm thinking of Alice McDermott. She wrote a wonderful book about the writing of fiction called uh, What About the Baby?, and she makes the statement that fiction um, it needs to be truer than life. Um, and fictional narr narrators do things to, to be as true, you know, make things as honest and true as they can make them. Um, when you're making it up, um, you have that, uh, I guess you have that leeway uh, to, to, to make things as true as you know, they could possibly be when you're trying to report on things and you report on things that are, you know, long ago, happened long, long ago. Um, it's harder. Um, but putting yourself in that place, is that a, is that a learned part of the discipline? Have you, have you, do you think after these years of doing it, you, you're better at putting yourself in the place of Benjamin Franklin and his sister Jenny, for example? Yeah, I do think it, it's something that you get by practice, but you also get by reading. I mean, I remember I often tell the story about when I was in high school, I had this great English teacher who had us write a letter to ourselves five years in the future, and then he mailed it to us. And this, this is extremely common now, like this is a very conventional teaching device, but it was new then. And I remember when I got that letter from myself, I had forgotten never having written it. And I opened up the envelope and I was really puzzled by what I was looking at. It was my handwriting. And yet it was an unrecognizable person. Like the difference mm. between you at 14 and you at 19 is sure. pretty severe pretty for big. many people. <laughs> and I remember thinking how just cool that. Well, like like I was, it was very interesting to me that this 14-year-old person was trapped on this page and preserved forever on this page. 
and it could, you know, travel like a message in the bottle to the future. And I could open it up and I, and, and while I was holding it and reading it and thinking, I was remembering in this case, you know, it's not that hard to remember yourself. I, I was remembering having written it and, and it was hard to put myself in that place. And that's what I do all the time in the archives. This is what all historians do all the time in the archives. And people do so, you know, you open up a photo album and you look at old pictures and maybe it's your grandparents or your great grandparents and you're trying to sort of see the world as they might have seen it. And it's, it's complicated and it's hard to do, but it's a little bit like a muscle that the more you use it, the stronger it gets. You say that you wrote The Deadline, which is the title of this collection of essays, uh, and that the title of this book explains why I write. And there are several meanings of deadline. There's a journalistic meaning, um, and there are others that you talk about, uh, including very poignant, uh, a very poignant meaning having to do with your best friend. Um, how does the deadline, the title, explain why you write? So I write quite compulsively. I write all the time. I'm very unhappy if I don't have something that I'm actively writing about. I become kind of frantic. And it's, you know, people are like, oh, my God, you write so much. It's such a, you must be so virtuous as if it's just a work ethic kind of thing. It's really a vice, right? Like it's an addiction. It's a, it's a problem. <laughs> um, like I can't not write. So uh, I've wondered, I've wondered a lot about how that came to be. And I, I really think it does have to do with the the story that I tell in this essay called The Deadline. That's a title essay of this collection, which is um, my best friend who I met in graduate school um, was diagnosed with leukemia at a time when I was trying to get pregnant. And when I did get pregnant, she made a vow. She just pledged that she would not die until the baby was born. And she didn't. I mean, she died within hours of the baby being born. So... Um, it's it sort of the there's the before and after of my life like there's before Jane died and then there's after Jane died and it's also before I had my first child and after I had my first child which for most people is the divide you know for people who have children is that dividing line of your life but for me it, you know it, it it really made manifest all these deep things that I think about as a historian which is the line between the living and the dead and what what we owe the dead and um, I also, you know, I ended up feeling like I had the life, I got to lead the life that she always wanted. She always wanted to have children. She wanted to finish her dissertation. She wanted to become a writer. Like I even wrote, I've even written essays that she had started to write in graduate school, things that she had researched and gotten interested in. She had an incredible writer's block. She was the person who could not write. Um, so I think that the, I don't know, the the frantic unending intensity that I bring to the need that I have to write all the time really comes from that and some I think real sense of obligation to the dead but then an anxiety about the way the dead kind of rule over us it's so poignant and so moving what what is our obligation to those who've passed Oh, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think about this in a, you know, a personal way all the time, the way all of us do, you know, you wonder something happens, you make a decision. And I often think, oh, my mother would be disappointed, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like that kind of, that kind of thing that, that, that we all have, or, oh, my mother would be so excited. Or I pick up the phone to call my father and I remember that he's gone. 
But then I think, you know, I'm a political and legal historian, and I think a lot about constitutional rule and the rule of law, and, you know, what what people who did not love the idea of a written constitution referred to as the dead hand of the living, the, 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 the dead hand of the law, right, that the dead kind of have their hands around our throats, and we can't make changes to the way we live our lives, because in 1787, someone wrote this down on a piece of paper. Um, so I, I, I have both a real strong sense of obligation across time, um, and the sort of usual spirit of rebellion that I think animates most people who feel constrained by their ancestors or by choices that other generations make. I mean, you think about how trapped we all are. Oh, think about just like in the 19 teens when when uh, gas engines won out over electric vehicles and what the consequences are that we all live yeah. with that. <laughs> um, you know, we're all kind of trapped in these timelines. Um, and studying the past is for me one way to kind of emancipate yourself just because you see how contingent everything is. Like it didn't have to happen that way. We don't have to keep keep doing it that way. Yeah, and it's and it brings up, you know, wonderful uh, ponderings about, you know, when we talk about obligations, the obligations to those who are dead whom we knew and loved and those who we didn't know but still want to give a fair shot historically, you know, an historical figure. What's the obligation to that person? What's the obligation to your mom, your dad, who you write about so poignantly in this book? And we'll talk a little bit more about them on the other side of a quick break, Jill Lepore is my guest. Her new collection of essays is called The Deadline. We'll have more after a break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. Welcome back to an archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. We're listening to a conversation I had in October with the historian and New Yorker staff writer Jill Lepore. We talked about her latest book, a compendium of essays, most of which have been published in The New Yorker over the last 10 years. In the introduction to this collection, Lepore notes that the period in which these essays were formulated coincided with, quote, a period of terrible, tragic decline in the U.S., short, sharp years marked by rising political violence, endless vicious culture wars, and a series of constitutional crises, catastrophic climate change, and a global pandemic. The book is called The Deadline. Our show was recorded earlier, so we can't take any calls or online comments today. Here's more of my conversation with Jill Lepore. So, Jill, um, I want you to tell us about your mom and dad. Um, you write about them so beautifully and poignantly. Um, as a matter of fact, the essay about your dad's called The Everyman Library that had not been published in The New Yorker before. That's new to this collection. Um, you, you said to, about your mom that you never knew anybody better to prepare, or rather, you never knew anyone better prepared to meet with beauty. She was an artist, and I love that line, and I think 
Boy, what a great thing to be able to say about somebody. Let's start with your mom. Tell us about her. Yeah, my, my mom was an elementary school art teacher, and like a lot of women of her generation, she was born in 1927, she, I think, was pretty constrained by domesticity. She and another generation would have maybe been an architect or a painter or a designer or something, and she didn't especially love teaching elementary school art and running Sunday schools and the Girl Scout Troop craft weeks, but... She brought this incredible appetite for beauty to everything that she did. And it was really infectious for me. And I also grew up in a house where there were craft supplies everywhere. Because my mother was always, she was working on designing new art projects at home for her students. And so we just had drawerfuls of, you know, buttons and snaps and ribbons and yarn and construction paper and oak tag. And we had a, you know, Milton Bradley one-armed paper cutter and uh, we had a <laughs> kiln in the basement and that you could always make something. And my mother was always game to do that. And when I went to graduate school, I actually really wanted to write, initially, I wanted to write a dissertation about the loss to the world of all the creative energy of women who were confined domestically and and, uh, and a new way to kind of think about craft uh, and the line between art and craft. And I had this kind of big, I don't know, sort of like Sylvia Plathy, young feminist <laughs> project. And... <laughs> I veered away from it, entirely away from it, into writing my, you know, my first book was a very um, scholarly history of a, of a war, and it was about the laws of warfare. Like, it couldn't have been more different. And most of my writing has been quite serious political history for most of my life. And um, I decided at one point, after I had my own kids, that I really ought to write a book that dealt with some of those themes that my mother was so interested in. And I ended up writing, starting writing this biography of Benjamin Franklin's sister, Jane, who reminded me a lot of my mother. And, um, and I, I didn't finish it before my mother died. So the essay in the book is about having failed my mother, like having not done the thing that was for her because she was always telling me to do the things that would be for me and what that anxious fraught, beautiful mother-daughter relationship was for us. So, um, yeah, well, you know, why, why I had to kind of, why I moved so far away from what I was originally interested in and trying to kind of examine that. Yeah. And how about your dad? Uh, you talk about your dad's love of books, uh, and you set this wonderful scene of his being in bed with a stack full of books on the nightstand reading while he was listening to the Red Sox games. <laughs> yeah, we had bedrooms down the hall from one another. So I would be lying in bed reading whatever I was reading. And my dad would be in bed reading, no doubt, like James Mishner and those crinkly plastic libraries, you know, library bound books with the plastic library covers. And we'd both be listening to the game. And occasionally, you know, we would holler out something interesting <laughs> happened. And I still I still do that. And when I listen to the Red Sox, like during the pandemic, when the uh uh, MLB started playing again and you could listen to it on the radio. It was like the most comforting thing I experienced in the whole years of the pandemic was just listening to the Red Sox on the radio. Um, it just takes me back to the, my dad, you know, and he was born in 1924. He was, his family were Italian immigrants and he always wanted to be a baseball sports broadcaster on the radio, but he also wanted to be a sports writer. And, um, 
he ended up being in elementary school and high school principal and guidance counselor, um, but was a big reader. And um, I wrote the essay about my dad to include in this collection because I ended up feeling really badly that I hadn't ever written about my dad. I really observed, like, I don't write a lot of personal essays because it's not, I'm, I have a whole, whole lot of reasons why I don't write personal essays, but I felt really guilty that I'd never written anything about my dad. <laughs> Um, so guilt I was, can be I was a good very thing. Happy to be able to, very happy to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah, guilt can be a good motivator. That, 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 you know, occasionally that's not so bad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because you you talk about uh, being bugged by the buttoned up conventions of the discipline of history, as well as a different kind of writing, the memoir where the only authority is the author, the only authority the author can imagine is the authority of personal experience. And of course, the market is flooded with books like that. Um, and the authors are you know, put themselves forward as being very credible about the particular thing they're writing about because they lived it. Um, and maybe they do some research around it, but it's the lived experience that is the the point of sale. There's a, there's great credibility uh, with lived experience. And in fact, there's a danger for someone to appropriate the lived experience of somebody else uh, if that person hasn't lived it herself. Um, is, is this something that worries you? Is this something that, uh, we should be on the lookout for? Yeah, I think we have, I think there's a weird sort of monetization of vulnerability that goes on in our culture mm. where you really can kind of cash in in some ways as a writer, if you expose your vulnerability as a human being. And I always thought about that when I was starting out is like, you know, women are all the time asked to bear their breasts in public, like women intellectuals, like, please tell us who you really are. Show us that you're a woman above all. And uh, I that drove me nuts. And I, I saw all the time women who I thought were tremendously interesting intellectuals kind of cajoled and coerced and ultimately, you know, writing memoir pieces I mean, plenty of people like writing in the genre. It's what they seek out and they do it beautifully. Like, and that's wonderful. I don't mean to demean the genre, but there was a certain, a lot of kind of commercial pressure on women intellectuals to do this particular kind of work, to reveal themselves, to kind of out yourself as female and feminine or domestic or whatever. And, uh, and, and then, you know, it always backfire, right? You're credible then, but you're not credible about anything else. Then, then you can no longer you know, offer up an opinion about the war in Ukraine, right? Like now you're just a woman and yeah. it would be just diminish. And so there just really aren't, I mean, you, you do this for a living where right? you bring people onto your show who are leading scholars of this and that. And there, you know, there are so many women who are experts on so many different things, but there are not a lot of women have a big public platform um, as, as scholars, as intellectuals and the pressure to kind of, publicly bear yourself as a woman just really frustrated me. So I really avoided writing personal pieces because I just hated the way that worked commercially. Uh, so this book is a big deal for, for me in that regard because I did include these essays. But the reason I started writing them was um, I once had an assignment to write an essay for like a special issue of the New Yorker about food. And I decided I wanted to write about the history of the breast pump. <laughs> so yeah, like right. I literally wanted to expose my, like I, I, it wasn't a personal essay. It was really a very kind of cultural and legal political essay on the history of the breast pump. But in one throwaway line, I mentioned 
I, I felt like I had to is, explain that I'd used one because that was a piece of how you maybe have some authority as a writer to write about breast pumps. And I said in a throwaway line, like whether it's more boring or more lonesome, I find hard to say. And then I was just flooded with letters from readers, women who were like, oh, my God, thank you for writing this really interesting history of the breast pump. And also for not just writing about your experience of the breast pump. <laughs> <laughs> like it was, it, and so it it kind of really um, made me think about how whether I should be really policing that line between the personal and everything else. That maybe I should just fess up that the you know the personal really is important to how I think about all manner of things. Jill Lepore is my guest. Her latest collection of essays is called The Deadline. She writes about breast pumps and just about everything else. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. And one of the things that is so impressive uh, and so wonderful about your writing is the the dot connecting that you do, the, the, the lineage that you show between what's happening now and what has happened in the past. You mentioned Benjamin Franklin's uh, sister, Jane, born six years uh, after Benjamin. They called them Benny and Jenny. And you interpolate the story of these two uh, into the, uh, the story of your mom. Uh, and uh, th- th- this impulse to to connect these things, to to intertwine them, um, that's it, it, a it's a wonderful gift, um, and it's it's elucidating. I mean, it seems um, that it, it, we we understand more about what's going on now and what happened then in the 1700s because the two things are are put uh, on a parallel plane. And um, is that a, a purposeful? thing is that the reason you do it yeah i think it's it's just sort of natively how i think the detection of that kind of pattern and i I try really hard not to kind of compress the distance between the past and present and say like oh now is just like then because now is never just like then like Mm -hmm. times are times are different eras are different in fundamental ways but i think the similarities of people across time really matter to me i mean there's a there's a I, I once went to see this guy who freezes the dead he invented cryonics and he was near the end of his own life and he had this place in michigan called a freezatorium where he you know people pay money to be frozen with the idea that in the future scientists will be able to reanimate you and make you eternally young and i just thought that was so bonkers on the face of it but i also I wanted to meet him like I pitched this piece, but I wanted to meet him because I felt such a sense of kinship with him. Like I'm unable to let go of people that I love, like when they die. Like I just like that's what he started by freezing his mother. Like he couldn't. It's just such a weird, like um, psycho kind of story. It's a kind of a horror story. But like for me, the piece I ended up writing was really just about how all of us have a really hard time letting go of people. And the fantasy that the technology can fix that, that you could invent a machine that could save a person, freeze them, is not that different than saving someone's papers and putting them in a library so that you can go read their letters again and again or keeping a photo album. That, 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 uh, so that kind of pattern really matters to me. And, I, and, and it, it always leaps out at me, right? What is, in what way is this like that? Yeah, and, and of course, you know, the, the human stories that have been uh, created about what happens after we die, you know, the eternal life story uh, of the Christian church, I mean, is, is in that same vein about, uh, you know, we, uh, we're never too far away from, you know, being reunited. 
uh, that's, that's a really fascinating uh, idea to, to think about. We have a question from a listener, Annette, who says, how does the author decide what to put in history writing and what to leave out or put in a footnote? Novelists can fill in the blanks. How does one resist the temptation to fill in the blanks if there are gaps in the sources? Oh, that's a great question, Annette. I mean, I, uh, some years back, wrote this thousand-page history of the United States uh, and it was really hard to figure out what to put in and what, what to leave out. What to put in wasn't that hard, but, you know, the the hard calls about what to leave out kept me up at night, still keep me up at night. I mean, I'm revising that book like it. It's those are those are really hard decisions to make. But I think you have an obligation to your reader to make sense of the past. Right. So I sometimes think of it, you know, you have a clothesline. And there's only so much length of clothesline like it runs it runs from the house to the garage and uh, you know you got your pulleys or whatever and you have a basket full of laundry and it's all beautiful like you love each and every one of these pieces of clothing but there's only so much room on the clothesline and you know you have to pick what you're going to hang up and when you've run out of room you've run out of room so you have to make you know careful choices i mean you have a second chance with a clothesline so my analogy is kind of junk but but the idea that like there's still the line like the reader needs the line so like when I was writing the history of the United States and I get to a chapter, you know, maybe the chapter is going to be about the Civil War. Jeez, I mean, you know, you could easily people there's thousands of books written about the Civil War, but I have one chapter to cover the whole war. And I think in that case, I made the decision to have the chapters theme be about photography and what the fact of the photographic capture of so much of the war meant to how people understood their own suffering and remembered that war. It was a fun way to talk about the war, but it also it was the clothesline, right? Then I only then I have so many photographs I'm going to use in the chapter, and I have so many stories about the photographs. And at least you know there's a you can the reader can see the whole for the parts. Yeah, and that's a fantastic uh, way to solve that dilemma. Uh, it's really imaginative, and it works. And and it's it's the fundamental. Uh, decisions like that that create good storytelling. It's interesting when you write about um, the congressional uh, committee, the special committee investigating the January 6th uh, attack. Uh, you say that the, the report um, basically fails, that it, it's surprisingly scanty in the key elements of storytelling, setting, character, plot. Uh, it's as if the committee found itself unable to surmount Trump's madness and senselessness trapped in its very plotlessness. So uh, what, what do you think they could have done better? Uh, how how uh, would, would better storytelling have uh, changed our perception of what they discovered in that process? Well, it's interesting. I think they made a decision very early on. It was a, a pragmatic and political decision that I don't think any of them especially regret. I would doubt that they regret, which was that instead of a broad explanation for the insurrection on January 6th, they were going to prepare a bill of indictment against Donald Trump. And you you know, remember there are others Republicans on the committee and Lynn Cheney was co-chair. And uh, I think what they could agree on was they wanted Trump to be prosecuted. And so the way they investigated, they investigated everything. But the report that they wrote was really just an indictment of Trump. And it doesn't explain how so many people uh, believed um, the the lie about the election, about Trump having won the election, which for me as a historian is the question that 
this is the historical question that matters, right? We, as a historian, I want to understand like why, why, you know, what, what really happened, like what, how did that happen? And they decided not, not to answer or even really to ask that question. And it's pretty different. What I compared it to in that piece was the nine 11 commission report. Now remember that's the commission. It was an independent commission. that had completely different resources and was outside of Congress. And the Republicans voted down having a commission to investigate January 6th. So there's just a House committee. Um, but the 9-11 commission decided, you know, not to try to prosecute anybody, not to blame. And this was also a political decision, but not, for instance, to hold George W. Bush accountable or but to instead try to explain the rise of bin Laden, um, the rise of Al Qaeda. And it, they they hired historians to write the commission report, which was like a National Book Award finalist because it was it read like a right. thriller. I mean, it was incredibly gripping as storytelling. And that meant that Americans really had a much deeper and richer understanding of what happened then because so many people, I mean, really people, would, I remember the bookstores, like bookstore windows were just, the entire window was the 9-11 report. Yeah. And like people really read it and it was informative and it, not that it was got everything right, but they decided that they were going to try to offer a big picture explanation. So it's just a very different um, agenda and objective that they had. And, uh, you know, I, I think people will say that the, what was successful about the January 6th House Committee report is that it it completely shamed the Justice Department for failing to indict. Like like people are like all right, the Justice Department, which has been dragging its heels, unwilling to indict Trump and kind of maybe waiting to see if this sort of blow over or what would be the best thing for the country, maybe do nothing. Uh, it was impossible to do nothing after that report, which was mm -hmm. their objective. So they met that objective. But it's a really interesting take. Your take is interesting because uh, the, the January 6th committee was applauded so heartily for the great storytelling they did uh, on those uh, televised hearings. But the report itself um, is devoid of the kind of storytelling uh, that, as you mentioned, was was uh, evident in the, in the September 11th report. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and speak more with Jill Lepore about her new collection of essays. It's called The Deadline. I'm Tom Hall. It's midday. Stay with us. Welcome back to this archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, we're listening to a conversation I had in October with Jill Lepore. She's a professor of history at Harvard College. She'll soon be a member of the Harvard Law School faculty as well. She's been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2005. We're talking about her latest book. It's her 13th, a collection of more than 40 essays culled from her vast opus of work for The New Yorker plus three previously unpublished pieces. It's called The Deadline. Our conversation was pre-recorded, so we aren't taking any calls or online comments today. So, Jill, I want to pick up, uh, we're talking about the January 6th report and the September 11th report, um, and this, this paucity of context in the January 6th 
report. You talk about the facts and circumstances and causes related to the uh, insurrection, things like COVID-19 and joblessness and farm closures. And uh, you have a whole list of important things. Context is very much uh, on the lips of many people these days, given what's going on uh, between Israel and Hamas. And there are people saying that we have to understand Hamas's uh, brutality and barbarism on October 7th uh, in the context of the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians going way back. Um, you're on the campus of Harvard, uh, which was uh, the nexus of, of uh, people's uh, displeasure when the, the group of student organizations said that they held the Israeli regime entirely responsible for the unfolding violence. Um, what what does context in the in the uh, case of uh, Israel Hamas uh, or context in terms of history mean to you? Uh, well, I mean, I I think it doesn't mean not exercising judgment or or having moral clarity about events, but I think that you know, as is the case of trying to understand Americans who believe that. The election was stolen from Donald Trump. I, you know, I think that it is, unfortunately, it has been the case that a lot of the liberal media does just say, you know, this, the you know dubbed this the big lie, which is kind of a cartoonish thing to say about something, and then, you know, sort of waved aside. Well, people have been duped, and uh, people who are duped are not very clever, right? Like they're not paying enough attention. They're being duped by whatever. Um, conspiracy theories that they come across online or whatever odd news source that they have. And I guess as a historian, I find that unsatisfying. You know, I mean, I know people who believe that Trump won the election and I, I, that they were duped is a completely insufficient explanation for me. And so I was, I'd been really looking forward and reading the January 6th committee report that it would offer some explanation of any of that or gesture toward it. And I know they held sort of specific hearings around social media and a lot of other, a lot of other factors that, that played a role in support for that theory. And, and then none of it was in the report. And I found that, I found that really puzzling and a little bit heartbreaking because it's, I, I, you have to have the kind of room to, pay attention to what people that you really disagree with and even people that you know are wrong believe. And so an example that I gave in that piece was, you know, I remember, and I think most people would say election day in 2020 was really strange and it was really um, kind of miserable. I mean, I went and voted in person which is a thing I love to do, like walk around to my neighborhood, you know, elementary school and buy the badly baked muffin and talk to the scouts and the yeah, <laughs> mothers or whatever and go to the red, white, and blue curtain and take my funny little pen, like the whole, everything about that I love. Um, and there was really like no line and there really, there wasn't a bake sale and everyone was wearing masks and it was just kind of sad because it was in the height of the pandemic and people were freaked out and but you yeah. also indict the media uh, in, in one of the essays saying that, that, that we yeah. were complicit in promoting 
the fiction of a Trump victory by reporting second by second on the 3rd of November. Obviously, things changed a few days later. Um, but, uh, you know, Trump was was leading uh, by the end of that night uh, and he wasn't leading by the end of a few nights later. Yeah, I mean, and I think you can see, you know, however urgent it seems it is to make sure and be clear and abundantly clear, you know, Biden won the election. It was a fair election and he won by a huge margin. You can still say it's not surprising that people were sort of freaked out about it because the voting was weird. And then in spite of the fact that there was going to be all these absentee, unprecedented number of absentee and mail-in ballots because of the pandemic, which meant that the final count would take a long time, which meant that there would be this so-called red mirage, where early on it would look like Republicans were winning everywhere and that Trump was leading nationally. Uh, that that would because those because of the way those absentee votes and the order in which they were counted, that that would actually the red mirage would actually fade. But the news, you know, major news organizations went ahead and did their election night coverage as if the outcome would be known that night reliably. And every once in a while would say, well, you know, we really won't know for a few days because we still have to count all these absentee ballots, um, you know, because Democratic voters are going to vote by mail in ballot in much bigger number. Remember, Trump said, don't use mail. in he said to his supporters, don't use these mail in ballots. So like there, there was if you were just watching the news, you could be forgiven for un, for ex- believing that Trump had won and then something had been stolen from like why a committee report can't acknowledge that and say, Therefore, the news media has to bear some blame for the incredible political dysfunction and, you know, not for the insurrection itself. I mean, even if you believe the election was unfair some way, it doesn't mean, you know, bring weapons to Washington and try to interrupt the Electoral College certification. Yeah. But that there that there was more to examine and some humility around um, the the possibility that good people acting in good faith could be wrong. And that the fact that you're right doesn't mean that everybody else is an idiot. Like that's that's the yeah. piece of those are you know, two that, different things, right? That that, yeah. that way that our culture just doesn't work right anymore. Um, I mean, if you watch the Israeli Hamas like tweet stuff, it's like people are condemning people for failing to condemn other people for condemning people. It's it's <laughs> like it's it's just it's just an endless kind of like Escher drawing of moral outrage. And uh, you mentioned the red mirage. You write about polling. You are not a fan of polling. Uh, You write that polls don't take the pulse of democracy. They raise it um, in an essay called Politics in the New Machine. I wonder, um, because polls are, you know, uh, sometimes famously inaccurate, I mean, Dewey versus Truman, uh, Clinton versus Trump, etc., what's a better way to to understand how things are going in the course of an election. We're 53 weeks out from the 2024 election. Um, You know, when it comes to deciding who gets on the debate stage on the 8th of November for the Republicans, um, is there there a better way than polling? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a policymaker, but I do think we don't really take enough note of what you know, polling was in some ways meant to replace the political machine polling and political consultants where, you know, guy would meet you in a bar, figure out how everybody in that bar felt in some neighborhood, report on that precinct to a precinct boss, you know, send out different messages and on election, whatever, the, the, the kind of retail party machine stuff. But polling does replace that. And it means that, you know, every time a poll reports the results of, of, of a measurement of public opinion, that replaces a lot of face-to-face conversations where campaigns or reporters would be out 
they'd be out in the bar or the PTA meeting or the playground or the basketball court or the neighborhood. Like they'd be talking to people and those face-to-face -face interactions about what do you think about what's going on right now? That's the necessary oil in the engine of democracy. And it, you know, we're kind of running this engine without any oil. Jill Lepore, her new book is called The Deadline. It's a gem. Jill, this has really been fun. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That's it for us today on this archive edition of Midday. I hope you'll subscribe to our podcast and check out shows you may have missed or ones you'd like to listen to again on the WYPR app or online at wypr.org midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.